Hello, everyone, and welcome to Celtic Preacher Podcast 123. And today we're going to be looking at one of Jesus' closest friends. Her name is Mary. This isn't Mary, his mother. This isn't Mary Magdalene, who's uh, kind of famous. This is Mary as in his really, really close friend. He had three close friends, Jesus. Mary, her sister, Martha, and brother, Lazarus. And, and oftentimes when he needed to relax and just get away when he wasn't necessarily teaching all the time, you know, he did have another life. It's just that we don't know anything about it, right? Because the Bible's silent in all the uh, personal details. But we do know that Jesus spent time relaxing with this family, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And we're going to be looking at Mary today. She's a fascinating woman. Uh, she's often uh, criticized. Uh, she's criticized in this text that we're going to be looking at. It's in John 12. People don't understand her a lot of the time. Uh, they don't necessarily approve of her uh, some of the time. And I think we can learn a lot from her. I think we can learn a lot just in the sense that, you know, how do we respond when people don't agree with us or don't approve of us in some way? Or how do we respond when people misunderstand us or they criticize us? And, uh, or, or, or how about they just do not understand where you're coming from? I mean, who hasn't experienced that? You're in a group of, you know, you're in company of some kind and it's like you're sitting there and you're thinking, these people really do not know me at all. They don't understand me. You know, how do you, how do you navigate that? Well, this is the position that Mary finds herself in in this text today. Now, what's fascinating about Mary is every time she is criticized, she does not spend any time defending herself. And you will notice, as I have noticed, that when people are in trouble of some kind or when people get into trouble, the first thing they tend to do is get all defensive like if you correct someone or if you point out something that's wrong, you get very, very defensive. And Mary has no time with this at all. You never hear her defending her actions. I think we can learn a lot from her. She doesn't waste her time trying to explain herself or trying to defend why she did what she did. She's perfectly content to let people think whatever they want to think, and she's going to go ahead and do what she believes is the best thing for her to do. Same thing happened when... This is, this is the Mary, by the way, just as for interest's sake. This is the same one who was criticized when she wouldn't help her sister get the dinner ready. And remember, she was sitting at the feet of Jesus. She was taking the place of a student, which was highly unconventional in those days because, you know, the women had very, very traditional roles in Jesus' day, patriarchal culture, of course. 
the women would be tending to the meals and the children, the men would be listening to the rabbi, whereas there is another account where she's certainly not making the dinner. She's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to the teaching, and she's criticized for that. And again, Jesus comes to her defense as he comes to her defense today. So this is what she's in trouble with uh, now. So this is what's happened. It is actually six days before Jesus dies on the cross. And nobody knows for sure when he's going to be arrested or when he'll die, but things are tense at this point. They know that his life is coming to an end. They don't know when he's going to be arrested or really how it will happen, but there's a price on his head. He's been teaching now for three years and there is a price on his head. And so Jesus is at Mary's house and Martha and Lazarus and he's having a meal with them. And so when he's reclining at the table, as they did in those days, because they would recline, Mary comes up and she breaks a very expensive alabaster jar of oil and pours this fragrant oil all over his feet in front of everyone, in front of the disciples, in front of Martha, in front of Lazarus, and she begins to wipe this fragrant oil with her long hair. Now, <laughs> that would be questionable today, that it was questionable then. Very intimate act. Here she is, touching him. Her hair is falling over his feet. There's fragrant oil. Yeah, and it happens six days before he dies. Six days. She knows, they all know. They might not have much time left. And they're right out of the blue, right at the dinner table, came as a shock and surprise to everyone, apart from Jesus, by the way. Jesus isn't particularly surprised. He's not shocked. She breaks this jar of fragrant perfume. And, I, you know, of course, I was wondering what it would smell like, this fragrant oil. And, of course, I had to check it out. I thought it might be floral, but it's not floral. Apparently, it was sweet, musky, spicy, earthy. And you might ask, well, how in the world did they know that? Because the same kind of expensive perfume was found in King Tutankhamun's tomb. <laughs> That's how people work these things out, right? So apparently it's this musky, earthy, spicy, sweet oil. That she, I suppose she's massaging it into his feet, right? And her hair's falling down. Now, doesn't mean, the hair thing doesn't mean much to us, but 2,000 years ago, uh, women did not uh, have their hair uncovered in these sorts of settings. It would actually be seen as quite improper. Plus, this perfume was worth thousands and thousands of dollars. So even if 
Lazarus and Martha and Mary were fairly wealthy, which they probably were. Uh, even so, it's really, really extravagant. I mean, it would have been months and months and months worth of salary, right? So she's, it's a very uh, ex generous thing to do. Now, she's obviously not the least bit concerned what people think about this. And I have a theory on perhaps why she's not particularly concerned. Because a number of things have happened. You know, her brother had a very, uh, <laughs> more than a close brush with death, Lazarus. He was restored, and I won't go into the whole story, but he uh, was restored to health by Jesus. And in fact, that was such an amazing thing that it was after that, that was the last thing Jesus did. That was the last healing that Jesus did. Because after that, uh, his enemies really went after him. They said, you know, we have got to stop this. Or everybody's going to start to follow him. So the brother had had this amazing healing. And she's anticipating that she's going to lose Jesus soon. And she loves him. And, and there's something about this mixture of really, truly loving someone and the fact that you might lose them. Because see, when you marry these two things together, great love and potential loss, it's like you, you just throw all caution to the wind. And I think this is what she's doing here. I think she is, she's, she's, she experience, she's experiencing deep love for him. And, and, and she also has this overwhelming sense of loss that's going to happen. And you know this from your own experience. Anytime you experience deep love or overwhelming loss or disappointment, grief, these types of emotions can just crack you open in the sense that you lose all your composure. You don't really care what people think. Normally, we care a lot. However, if you're really grieving, you don't really care what people think. Or if you are completely captivated by someone, you don't really care what they think. You don't really care. Because you're not protecting yourself at these points in time. You know, you're not protecting your ego at such times. You don't really care about trivial matters, about if somebody's going to approve or not. Which is quite a free, it's very freeing actually, isn't it? And such is the power of deep love or overwhelming grief, but when you merge these two together, this love and grief, wow, I mean, you, you just, you don't really care what, any, what anybody thinks at that point. And you just throw all caution to the wind. And she's thinking, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to have him with me much longer. This could be her last chance, right? To say what she needs to say, to do what she needs to do. Jesus has a price on his head. People want him dead. His enemies are closing in. She has a final opportunity to show him how much he means to her. And so she pours this oil over his feet. Actually, Jesus said, don't criticize her. She anointed me. She's anointing me 
for my burial. Now, it's an unusual thing to say because normally men anoint men. Now, an anointing is just when you're pouring oil over something, a person, and you're dedicating it in some way. So the kings were anointed. You know, the oil would come and they would mark the king's, the future king's head with oil. Actually, we do this in baptism. It's kind of a ritual, setting something apart. Jesus said, that's what she's doing here. She's anointing me for my burial. As soon as she does it, of course, she's criticized. So she's, she's, her hair is all over his feet. She's anointing him with oil. The perfume is filling the room and Judah starts to criticize her, one of the disciples. What a waste of money. What an absolute waste of money. We could have sold that money and that could have been given to the poor people. You know, he's not really interested in, in, poor, in poor people. He, he wants to pocket some of the money. But this is what he says. He said, you know, it's just a waste. And interestingly enough, Mary, again, just like previous times when she's been criticized, she doesn't defend her actions. But Jesus does, again. And he defended her before when she was criticized. When she was criticized for sitting at his feet, listening to his teaching, she's criticized there. And Jesus says, leave her alone. She's chosen the better part. Here, she's criticized. What a waste. How extravagant. What a complete and total waste of money. Jesus comes to her defense. No, no. He says, leave it alone. Leave it alone. She set this oil aside. This is for me. This is a special thing she's doing for me before I die. Yeah. She's her own person, isn't she? I mean, she's going to do exactly what she thinks she needs to do. And she's not going to be put off by other people. And I just love the fact that she doesn't defend herself because so many times we, we experience this a lot um, with just as you observe people and maybe when you observe yourself. Uh, you see people go into such a defensive posture. They're always defending themselves and making excuses for everything. Well, I had to say this because, you know, and then they defend themselves. Or I was right when I did this because, and then they defend themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's this whole, we're so fragile. We're forever needing to defend herself. She says nothing. She's a very strong person. She's very strong this way. Doesn't need to say anything. It's almost like by not saying anything, she's saying, I don't really care what you think. I don't really care if you understand this or not. This is what I need to do at this time. This is important to me. This is what I need to do. You're not going to stop me. So she says nothing. And Jesus defends her. Now, there is a lot in Scripture about God being our defense. But in this passage, Jesus defends her by saying, leave it alone, verse 7. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you. You're not always going to have me. 
So he's even saying, look, my time is really short and I'm going to be leaving. Leave it alone. See, as far as Jesus is concerned, Mary's heart was in the right place. You can get away with an awful lot <laughs> if your heart's in the right place. You know, that's just the way God works. It's all about why you do what you do, what your motives are. Her motives are, I, I adore him and I want him to know. I want him to know that. And I don't care whether you approve or whether you don't. And he comes to her defense. Now, the Psalms, the book that's a, a book in the books in the middle of the scripture in the Bible, the Psalms are like songs. They're filled with songs about God coming to our defense, like Psalm 100, uh, Psalm 18, for example. Like God is a fortress and a strong tower. God is like a rock. There's an old hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. The Psalms talk about God being our shield. The Psalms talk about God being our stronghold. And often, you know, from our perspective, living here in North America, or in the Western Hemisphere, certainly, you know, we tend to think of when we think about a fortress, we think about a, a, a shield, we're, we're thinking, we tend to think in terms of battle. Uh, you know, the ancient images of defense and battle. And so we can skip over these Psalms because we can think to ourselves, well, here in this part of the country, we can think to ourselves, well, I'm, we're not in war, we're not in a war. So that doesn't make any difference to me. But in the scripture, the whole idea of battle can be anything. It doesn't have to be person to person or country to country. A battle is anything you struggle with. For example, St. Paul spoke about the battles that we face within ourselves. So within ourselves, there is tension sometimes. So there's a back and forth tension that's like a battle. We can battle against grief. We can battle against insecurity. We can battle against fears. We can battle against anxiety and stress, right? All these things are inner battles. So when the scripture says God's your defense, this is a whole other way of dealing with our inner tensions and stressors and fears. This is a whole other level, right? When God is saying, listen, I'll be your defense. I'm your defense. People, if when people misunderstand you, so be it. It's like God saying, I know what you're doing. I know why you're doing what you're doing. If people don't affirm you, if people don't acknowledge you, if people don't recognize you, I affirm you. And that's enough. That's what it means to say, God is my defense. It's like, yeah, sometimes people won't. They don't understand us, but you know, God does. God does. And knowing this can change our lives. Because it's like, no, you don't have to, no more worrying about others' approval. You know, when you have God's approval, it's like, oh, okay, 
<laughs> yeah. When you have God's approval, first and foremost, I mean, that's what's really important, isn't it? I mean, we, of course we want to have people's approval. Of course we do. But sometimes it's not always possible. And so when it's not always possible, that's when we can lean into knowing that, well, you know, we have God's. We have God's approval. And that's enough. St. Paul was really strong on this. He was the one that wrote three quarters of the New Testament with the help of God, of course. Um, but he was really strong on this idea of First and foremost, God's my defense. I mean, Paul was the one who said, am I trying to win the approval of people? I can't, he says, Galatians 1. I can't please people. I've tried. If I were still trying to please people, St. Paul says, I, I couldn't even be a follower of Christ. I mean, realistically, I couldn't. If I'm still trying to, I mean, anyway, isn't it impossible isn't it impossible to please people all the time? It's just exhausting. Yeah, Paul would say, if I were still trying to please people, there's no way I could follow Christ. Because he just, he had le he just learned just from living. It's not possible. So our first concern is always, I need to be right with myself, and I need to be right with God. Now, if people come along with me, that's a wonderful gift. And if they don't, well, I'm going to do what I need to do anyway. This is what Mary did. She, she acted in the same way, you know? She says, I'm following my heart here. I'm following my heart. I really don't care. I'm breaking the soil. I'm pouring it over his feet. I adore this one. I adore him. I adore him. And, and God saw that, yeah? She's a free woman. To, to think and act and do what she believes is her calling, what she believes is her place, not what somebody else says her place is. Mary's not interested in what, other, what her sister thinks her place is. The sister's already tried to put it in her place in another passage. Uh, Judas is trying to put it in her place yet. No, no, no. She's not interested in what they think. She is free to live her own life without holding back. What, an, what a great truth this is. That when the heart's pure, meaning when your motives are good, not talking about a, heart, a pure heart as in never ever having made a mistake in your life, otherwise we're never ever going to have a pure heart, right? So... But I think this is the, the truth here, that when our motives are good and when we, when we act with the right intentions, that's enough. That's enough. God knows. God knows. And that's enough. Even if people misunderstand, even if they criticize, even if they're just confused by us, it's enough that God knows our hearts so we can move forward and do whatever we need to do. So there's the prayer. There's the heart cry. God, help us, just like Mary, to do whatever we need to do, even if it looks foolish or extravagant or crazy or it can be misunderstood. If you've put something on our heart and we need to do it, help us to go ahead and break 
the jar of oil. Well, thank you for joining me. You have been listening to Celtic Preacher. Join with me again next week for another episode.